48K News. It's 11 o'clock. I'm Robert Kemp. Tonight's headlines. Three people are arrested for alleged national security offences over a protest at Chinese University last month. Police defend freezing the bank accounts of Ted Hoy and his family and authorities consider mandatory COVID tests for residents of a coronavirus-hit public housing block. Police have arrested eight people over a graduation day protest at Chinese University, with three of them accused of inciting secession in violation of the national security law. Officers say pro-independence slogans and banners were used during the unauthorised rally. Richard Pine reports. Dozens of people wearing black graduation gowns and face masks marched to Chinese University's mall last month. Now three of them have been arrested on suspicion of violating the national security law. Here's senior superintendent Steve Lee. Not all the people is arrested for the um, national security law because uh, we is an evident basis. We only arrested them who is shouting the slogan, displacing the threats, which involve uh, some national security concern. Mr. Lee said the three national security suspects are all students, but not from Chinese University. They're among eight people, all male, who were arrested in connection with the protest. They're between 16 and 34 years old and include students, social workers and two district councillors. All are accused of having taken part in an unlawful assembly at the Shatin campus on November the 19th. Police say they have asked banks to freeze the bank accounts of former pro-democracy lawmaker Ted Hoy and those of his family members as part of an embezzling investigation. They say the moves were necessary after the former legislator fled to Britain. Violet Wong reports. Senior Superintendent Steve Lee from the police's National Security Department says officers are looking into whether Ted Ho embezzled money that was collected through crowdfunding for private prosecutions, including a case against a police officer who shot a student in the abdomen during last year's protests. We only focus on the $850,000 only, not the three million or the things, because uh, there's a lot of things that's come across of these two days. The officer said some of the money could have been transferred to the bank accounts of Mr. Ho's relatives, and this is why they too had to be frozen. He also explained that the SS freeze was prompted by the former lawmaker's announcement that he was going into exile. The senior superintendent also said comments that Ted Ho recently posted on social media could violate the national security law in relation to collusion with foreign forces. The former lawmaker has said at the weekend that a number of accounts belonging to his family containing several million dollars had been frozen, but they were later able to access some of the funds once again. He said the family had immediately transferred their savings to safe places because they no longer trusted HSBC. Meanwhile, Financial Secretary Paul Chan has rejected suggestions that the freezing of the Hoy family accounts risks undermining faith in the SAR status as an international financial centre. Civic passion lawmaker Cheng Chung Tai raised the issue in LegCo. Mr Chan quickly brushed it aside. He spoke to an interpreter. I would not comment on individual cases here. As for the position of Hong Kong as a financial centre and also the uh, robustness of the banking and monitoring systems in Hong Kong, well, last year we had uh, various disturbances and then this year we have COVID-19 and then there's also sanctions from the US. For over a year we faced uh, severe challenges but our systems remain robust. So therefore there is no need to answer Dr. Zhang's questions further. 
Health officials say they have not decided yet whether residents of Kwaishing West Estates would be required to undergo mandatory COVID testing. The number of cases today linked to the blockers by 1 to 13. Cecil Wong reports. While 12 previous patients live on the fifth floor of Block 8 of Kwaishing West Estate, the latest patient lives on an upper floor. Dr. Chong Shokwan of the Center for Health Protection said they might have been infected after touching certain communal facilities. She said more than a thousand residents have already submitted specimens for COVID-19 tests. Whether to do mandatory testing for the Kwaising residents depends on the cooperation of the residents. Authorities reported 78 new coronavirus cases on the day. 71 of them are locally acquired infections, 29 of which are via unknown sources. A steward who worked at the concerts of pop star Hins Chung has been confirmed with COVID-19. That's after four people who attended the shows on different days last month came down with the infection earlier. A total of 50,000 people attended the performances over eight days. Dr. Chuang said although officials are not sure if there's an outbreak at the concerts, she appealed to anyone who is worried to get tested for the virus. you tuned to RTHK. The time is five minutes past 11. Medical experts warn the worst is yet to come in the latest wave of coronavirus infections, with one saying it is basically impossible to get the epidemic under control by the end of the year. He's John Wong. Ho Pak Leung from the University of Hong Kong said there was an increasing number of untraceable cases, numerous local infections and clusters involving different venues. The microbiologist told an RTHK program that he didn't see any improvement this year. With the weather getting colder, Christmas approaching and members of the public not following rules. Dr. Ho also said a public housing block in Kwai Chong, where 12 residents on the same floor were infected, should be locked down, with all residents tested and those who've left hunted down for quarantine. Speaking on the same program, infectious disease expert Lung Chi Chu said the epidemic was worsening and if people continued to go out, it would be impossible to tame the crisis. Around 10,000 collection packs for COVID specimens were handed out free of charge at MTR stations today as part of a new initiative to encourage more testing. Most people we spoke to say it's a good idea, but some took more than one pack, as Jimmy Choi reports. The collection packs are stored in vending machines in the unpaid area of 10 MTR stations across the territory, and each station distributes around 1,000 specimen packs per day. People can use their octopus cards to get the free packs. They are then required to deliver their samples back to designated outpatient clinics. At Taiwai Station, people were seen queuing up a defending machine there during the morning rush hour. There were also queues at times at Tukenglang Station. They were only supposed to get one pack, but some got more by using multiple octopus cards. Singh, a mother of two who lives in the area, says she came to get testing kits for her two children as a precaution. It's actually very convenient rather than I go to the clinic to kill up to collect the bottle. The MTL says anyone with symptoms or who has had contact with a COVID patient should not use the service and should go straight to a hospital instead. Financial Secretary Paul Chan has promised that the government wouldn't be reckless in cutting costs, even as it expects to see a budget deficit for at least one more year amid the coronavirus pandemic. Richard Pine reports. Paul Chan painted a gloomy picture of Hong Kong's economic prospects to legislators, saying the economy may only start recovering in the latter part of next year at the earliest. The government's deficit this year is expected to exceed $300 billion, while its fiscal reserves fall to $800 billion, a level similar to that seen in 2003, when the city was hit by the SARS outbreak. 
that means the government will have to tighten its belt. He reiterated that there are no plans to roll out another round of wage subsidies for businesses or provide allowances for people who lose their jobs. Instead, the authorities will provide more targeted support for sectors hardest hit by the pandemic. Asked if the government will cut its recurrent expenditure, Mr Chan said officials will take a prudent approach. He spoke through an interpreter. During the Asia financial crisis, the government cuts costs drastically, like the early retirement scheme and so on. Actually, there were aftermaths because of those measures. So we need to adopt a prudent approach. We cannot be reckless. There may be unexpected results, for example, shortage of talent in the medical care system. There are medical students working in the public hospital who would like to attain specialist status. They would not be able to do so because of our measures. That would affect the morale and confidence of medical staff. On the property market, Mr Chan said flat prices only dropped by about 1% between June and October, despite the pandemic, while the number of transactions increased in recent months. He said, therefore, measures to cool the market will remain in place. Beijing's liaison office in Hong Kong has condemned the death threat made against the chief magistrate and his family last week. Spokesman said any behaviour that blatantly challenges the bottom line of the law cannot be tolerated. It accused radicals of threatening local judges in a bid to affect their judgments in future cases. He said this in itself was a blatant challenge to the national security law. Foreign Ministry in Beijing has issued a warning to the United States as reports emerge that Washington is planning fresh sanctions over the expulsion of four Hong Kong lawmakers. Priscilla Ong has this story. Speaking at a regular press conference, Foreign Ministry spokeswoman Hua Chunying warned of firm countermeasures to safeguard China's sovereignty and security if Washington goes ahead with the sanctions. She said Beijing firmly opposes and strongly condemns any interference in its affairs. She was speaking in response to a report from the Reuters news agency, which cited three U.S. sources as saying that up to 14 Hong Kong and mainland officials would be sanctioned over the expulsion of four pro-democracy lawmakers last month. The report said the sanctions could be announced as early as this week as the outgoing administration of Donald Trump steps up pressure on Beijing. But the State Department and the White House has not responded to requests for comment so far. In August, Washington has already imposed sanctions on Chief Executive Carrie Lam, as well as other top local and mainland officials, for what it said was their role in curtailing freedoms in the SAR. China's exports have climbed at their fastest pace in almost three years. Another sign the mend economy is on the mend from the negative impact of COVID-19. Exports last month shot up 21.1% year-on-year thanks to strong global demand. Analysts believe demand for pandemic-related items such as personal protective equipment was behind the strong figures. Imports, meanwhile, rose 4.5% in November. That's down slightly from October's 4.7% growth, but still represented a third straight month of expansion. Centre for Food Safety says it has no plans to force bakers to reduce the amount of salt in bread as it announced the expansion of a voluntary scheme to reduce sodium. Centre has been working with seven local bakeries for more than a year and said the amount of sodium per loaf had been reduced by about 3%. Henry Young, the centre's principal medical officer, says it's now rolling out the scheme to cover fresh bread offered at 50 local bakery shops, but forcing bakers to comply might not work. We have no plans to make it a mandatory requirement at the moment because this salt reduction is a gradual reduction in taste. And when we all look at the overseas experience, if there is any success in this change in taste, it is 
a more gradual and more educational rather than make it a very mandatory requirement. The European Union's chief Brexit negotiator Michel Barnier is reported to have given a downbeat assessment of trade talks with Britain. Briefing EU diplomats shortly before he resumed negotiations with his British counterpart, Mr Barnier said he could not guarantee a deal would be struck and that differences persisted. The Irish Foreign Minister Simon Coveney spelled out the main sticking points. The two really difficult issues of the level playing field or fair competition and the governance around that and fishing still seem to be very, very problematic. There really was no progress made yesterday. That's our understanding. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson and the European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen will discuss the state of negotiations later. If no deal is done by the end of the year, UK and EU will introduce tariffs and border checks on goods. Officials in the Indian state of Andhra Pradesh say more than 400 people have now needed hospital treatment. One man has died because of an unidentified illness. Residents in the town of Iluru have reported a range of symptoms in the last two days. BBC's Jill McGivering reports. So far, the authorities seem baffled. But whatever the cause, the number of people being rushed to local hospitals has continued to rise. Some report fit, similar to epilepsy, even a loss of consciousness. Others report vomiting or frothing at the mouth. Nearly 50 children are affected, although most patients are aged between 20 and 40. Initial tests of air and water and blood samples haven't revealed any possible cause. All the patients tested negative for the coronavirus. The European Union's foreign ministers have agreed to adopt legislation similar to the Magnitsky Act in the United States, which allows the imposition of sanctions on human rights abusers anywhere in the world. Travel bans or asset freezes can be ordered, regardless of where the crimes were committed. Heiko Maas is Germany's foreign minister. It means that in future the European Union can sanction the most serious human rights violations, so those who torture, where there's human trafficking, where human rights are not respected, in future those people should no longer be able to enjoy carefree shopping in Europe. Indonesia says it's examining its first consignment of a Chinese coronavirus vaccine that arrived on Sunday ahead of distribution to medical workers and high-risk groups. The country which has the worst outbreak in Southeast Asia has received 1.2 million doses of the Sinovac jab. It's been undergoing tests since late August. Mind of our top stories tonight, three people are arrested for alleged national security offences over a protest at Chinese University last month. Police defend freezing the bank accounts of Ted Hoy and his family. And authorities consider mandatory Covid tests for residents of a coronavirus-hit public housing block. The news from RTHK. RTHK. It's time now to get stories covered in this evening's Newswrap programme. Russia declared itself first to register a COVID vaccine, then claimed that Sputnik V, as it's called, was the most effective. Now it's pipped the UK to the post by launching a mass vaccination programme and offering the jab to teachers, health and social workers. But as the BBC Sarah Rainsford reports from Moscow, there are doubts about Russia's ability to live up to its own hype. A nurse holds up a tiny glass bottle, turning it so the cameras get the best shot. Then she fills a syringe with Sputnik V, a tiny dose of Russia's vaccine against COVID-19 that's now on offer to those most at risk of catching the virus. People like Natalia, a doctor who's sitting with her sleeve rolled up and ready for the jab. She's unfazed by all the cameras and by the fact that the vaccine she's getting is still experimental. 
because even as Sputnik V is being rolled out to the population, mass trials to check it's safe and works are still underway. Natalia tells me she's seen just how sick people can get with COVID, though, and so she has no doubts at all about getting vaccinated. Sputnik V has been registered, she says, so she's fine with that. It was Russia's president who announced that the country's vaccine had been cleared for emergency use way back in August. He hailed it as a world first, though at that stage Sputnik V had only been tested on a handful of soldiers. Now it's Vladimir Putin who's ordered the start of mass vaccination. The first injections came just days before Britain begins offering the Pfizer vaccine. Pfizer said 90 percent. Gamaleya Institution 92, Pfizer 94. Svetlana Zavidova says Russia has treated the quest for a Covid vaccine as a race from the very start. I think the decision to register this vaccine it's politicians' decisions. Svetlana's organization monitors clinical trials and she's concerned Russia's been cutting corners in its rush. She mentions vaccine scientists injecting themselves and some of the limited data that there is looking a little odd. So is Russia's vaccine actually ready for this rollout? It's uh, very early to say is it really good or bad because only after uh, the third phase clinical trial uh, we can estimate the real efficacy and safety of not only this vaccine but any product. Other international vaccine trials have independent bodies to analyze their data. So does Russia, though Dr. Alexander Rumyantsev does have a large bust of Mr. Putin on his bookshelf. I've heard the interim reports of those running the trials, and I can say for sure that the vaccine is safe and it can produce a short-term immune response. We're still studying how long that lasts. Around one in four people have side effects, but they're not pronounced. There were no serious problems. But there are problems elsewhere. Not that you'd spot it from the slick PR videos released by Team Sputnik. They used to promise tens of millions of doses of their vaccine this year. But some manufacturers haven't even opened their production lines yet. One that has, BioCAD, is up in St. Petersburg. Well, through the thick glass here, there's a, a big plastic bag filled with brown liquid that's just gently rocking backwards and forwards on a metal tray. All sorts of tubes emerging from it and uh, a man in the background in the full hazard suit. Now this is just the beginning of the process of producing Sputnik V, the Russian vaccine. From here it's uh, quite a way still to the point when it's rolling off the conveyor belts and heading out to clinics around the country. Sputnik V is actually two separate jabs with entirely different components. The scientists say that makes the vaccine more effective. But BioCAD boss Dmitry Marozov says no one consulted the producers about the practicalities. They basically doubled the work for us. It's like you need two cars to actually move forward. And they're both completely different, a Jeep and a minibus. And that's a serious challenge. It means we have a far tougher task than the other vaccine manufacturers. Russia's taken on a crazy task. So this mass rollout has grabbed attention. 
but it won't be quite as massive as Russia had hoped, perhaps two million injections this month. And that is a worry, because behind all the hype is the reality of this pandemic. Hospitals in some Russian regions are fast running out of space, and the number of new COVID infections is still on the rise. In North Korea, officially, there have been no confirmed cases of the coronavirus, but there is now a dwindling ability to get an independent assessment of what is happening. Although diplomats from Pyongyang's traditional allies, China and Russia, remain in place, there's been an exodus of foreigners in the last few months. The most recent departures last week have left only three international humanitarian workers in the country. Chad O'Carroll is the founder of NK News, an independent news website that focuses on North Korea. Every few weeks or months, uh, another group of people decide to leave. And the main reason is that the the restrictions that North Korea has imposed relating to COVID-19 are so extreme that it prevents diplomats and humanitarian workers rotating in and out of the country, you know, topping up staff. It prevents their headquarters from sending cash into the country to spend. There's no banking because of the sanctions. The rules prevent the foreigners from really doing any practical work in North Korea. They're restricted to the capital, Pyongyang. They can't leave. Or for a long period, they couldn't even leave their um, diplomatic compound. And um, people just get fed up, basically. And so we're seeing this drip drab of groups besides one Chinese and one Russian diplomat who have managed to get out of the capital city. And so that's resulted in effectively a total darkness about what's going on in some of the most developing areas of North Korea. And so it's really a big question mark how conditions really are. And we have to trust North Korea's state media. And besides that, we have satellite imagery. We have some uh, unofficial channels that still seem to be getting some information out. But it's a very, very distorted picture. And so it could be quite bad. Report by a Hong Kong-based marine conservation organization, Oceans Asia, estimates that more than one and a half billion face masks will have entered oceans in 2020. It says this will result in an additional four to six thousand metric tons of marine plastic pollution. The report says that the mask could take several hundred years to break down, slowly turning into microplastics. But it's not just about the masks. The huge increase in the use of plastic bags and takeaway food has resulted in a massive increase in single-use plastic. Earlier, Anna-Marie Evans asked Gary Stokes, Director of Operations for Oceans Asia, what the key risks were with these masks, not only the sheer weight of how many are landing in our oceans, but also their composition. Well, obviously the threat to marine wildlife, consuming them and, and, and then obviously blocking digestive tracts and things like that. But then uh, more importantly is the loading of microplastics that's going to be over the next you know, couple of hundred years as they break down. And the microplastic is also so is in the masks? Well, the masks are made of uh, spun polypropylene and, and also other plastics. So as they break down, which they break down pretty quick, and we're already finding some on the Sokos that are already breaking down in smaller pieces, but they will break down to microplastics, which they- are being found in, in obviously in fish, it's destined for supermarkets, uh, it's been found even in sea spray, and even in some of the newly found species at the bottom of the deepest oceans. How come the masks are ending, in the, uh, ending up in the ocean? Well, that's, that's a good question. I mean, some of it is from careless littering, and obviously that doesn't just have to be by the ocean. It can be on the streets. You know, they could go down drains, or the drains lead to the ocean. But it's pretty much 
from we reckon it's from just poor waste management systems. Now, obviously, these these things are light, so if it does go to a, a landfill, they're quite easily blown off the top if they're not covered over straight away. So they're light, you know, they they're light. They travel very easily you know, on the wind. Now, the other issue is it's not just about face masks, is it? There's been just a, a during this whole COVID period, there's been an exponential increase in plastic, and it's also been an opportunity for firms on issues of plastic bags. Yeah, well, we've seen um, you know quite a few of the, the the great steps forward that we had all made in the last five years in reducing single-use plastic. We've seen a lot of those dialed back, some understandably, and obviously we're not we're not saying uh, they shouldn't have been, but it is a major setback. Uh, things like everything being wrapped individually in plastic, coffee shops re- you know, refusing people to use their reusable cups, but also the massive amount of reliance on home delivery and takeaway items. And this is all extra packaging, which is going into the waste management system. So your report is to highlight just these huge amounts, uh, those that are, you know, the plastic pollution that you describe as devastating our oceans. But what would you say are some of the ways that we can cut back? Well, the most obvious, which is on an individual level, is to stop using single-use and start using reusable masks. We are very much encouraging people they must wear masks. We're not saying they don't, but to wear a a reusable mask, uh, in most circumstances, that's perfectly safe. Obviously, if you're going into medical environments and things like that, then, yeah, to wear a, a surgical mask is fine. And what we do find is, obviously, in the hospitals, they are being disposed of properly because they, with all you know, medical waste, they incinerate them on site. So you know, it's not a question of don't use them. It's a question of if you can, switch to reusable. Uh, I've had the same five reusable masks since this started. I've been washing them and uh, reusing them over and over. This is obviously a, you know, just, just the top of the iceberg, really. This is a bigger problem that we've had is marine debris in general. Um, plastic is filling up our oceans and the masks are really drawing a spotlight onto this really the bigger problem is the amount of single-use waste we are creating now you estimated that a 1.56 billion face masks will have entered oceans in 2020 how did you come to those measurements uh yeah well a lot of it has had to be on different assumptions because the amount of data actually out there already is uh, is pretty much few and far between uh, we've been going through all the different reports on mask production and mask needs and requirements, like the WHO, what they were uh, saying they were estimating was the global need. And probably one of the best reports we found came to a number of 52 billion being used a year. The global waste of single-use plastic uh, has always been cal- calculated on the 3% ending up in the ocean. So 3% and then... Each mask is weighing between three and four grams. So that's why we came up with the numbers, you know, 4,680 up to 6,240 tons is the weight of 1.56 billion masks. Mm, so we can all do better. We certainly can all do better. We all need to do better, yeah. Firefighters on a holiday island in Australia say they may soon be unable to prevent a huge bushfire from advancing. The bushfire warning system on Fraser Island, designated World Heritage Site off the coast of Queensland, has been raised to emergency level. 
BBC Shai Mahalil says firefighters are doing all they can to contain the spread of the blaze. They are struggling to contain this because the weather conditions have just made it really, really difficult for firefighters. You've got this almost perfect storm, if you, if you will, of the heat wave of gusts of wind and dry land that is just making the situation harder and harder to control. And as you say, they've been at it for, about, for weeks now, since mid-October, when that illegal campfire sparked this fire. It has now blazed through at least half the island, uh, we understand. But we do know that... The, uh, the, the warning now, the fire warning has been raised to emergency levels. Uh, people in the, uh, in the township of Happy Valley, it's a small community, have been told to evacuate. We understand that of the 50 households there, 35 have decided to stay and defend their homes. And that's a mix of experienced firefighters and people who have prepared their homes. But really, at this point, because it's become so difficult, because it's become so hard to control, they're throwing everything at it. So, you know, those water-dropping aircraft that you were watching, 25 of those, 100 personnel are on the scene, and they're planning to drop a million liters of water. But really... What the fire authorities in Queensland have been saying, and we've heard that time and time again from firefighters on the ground from last summer's uh, bushfire season, the thing that's going to really put this out is rain and lots of it, and that's not what they're getting right now. The Royal Mint in Britain has released a new collection of coins celebrating the music legend David Bowie. One coin which features the musician's famous lightning bolt design has been to space, as the BBC's Aina Aslam explains. Ground control to Major Tom. David Bowie released his song Space Oddity five days before the Apollo 11 launch in 1969, which landed the first man on the moon. He also wrote the hits Lady Stardust, Starman and Life on Mars. In honour of the singer's career, the Royal Mint has put a small group of collectible coins up for sale. One silver coin was even launched into space and orbited the Earth's atmosphere for 45 minutes before coming back down to be offered as a prize to a random winner on the Mint's Facebook page. But if you're not lucky, fans can also buy the coins at prices from just 18 to nearly $100,000. This story is a part of the Newswrap program, which was broadcast on RTHK earlier this evening. Robert Kemp from our newsroom. Fight the virus, stay vigilant. If you think you have a higher risk of COVID-19 exposure or experience discomfort, you can collect specimen bottles for free testing from designated public clinics. Meanwhile, the government will arrange free testing for targeted groups. To minimize the risk of community transmission, we should take the initiative to get tested. Together, we must fight the virus. Stay vigilant. Visit coronavirus.gov.hk for details. Live across Hong Kong, this is Radio 3. January to December, we'll have moments to to remember that's the title of this uh, program from now until 1am yours truly Ray Cordero all the way Johnny Pearson at the piano the theme from Love Story